Father God, we've just, we just prayed uh, that your kingdom would come. And we've prayed for your power to invade us by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask that, that, that you'd answer that prayer now as we look at your word together. Please give us hearts that will be ready to hear what you're saying to us. And please bring change in us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, name the elephant? I guess you probably have. It's the kind of thing you do when you want to draw attention to the kind of elephant in the room that everyone has spotted, but that no one is mentioning. It's making everyone a bit uncomfortable. Um, when I lived in London, I used to be part of a series of lunchtime meetings for workers. And we used to have to go to quite a lot of fairly sketchy venues. Um, and one of the worst was actually a theatre. And we used to meet in a, in a room where next to, next to us you'd have uh, people preparing to uh, go on stage. And the low point was probably when one of, my, one of the boss of these talks was giving his talk. And next door, uh, an actress started warming up her vocal cords and she was going, ah, while the guy's trying to give his talk. Well, that was a situation where you had to name the elephant. You kind of had to say, no, don't worry about the lady behind me, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Because everyone had noticed it. And it was uh, something that no one was mentioning. Well, let me, let me name the elephant that I think is in the room this evening. We're here on a beautiful evening in Belfast. Uh, a group of a variety of people of ages and stages. We've got um, uh, people at school, students, people who work, people who are retired. We're all here. Uh, and we're here for a church service. And I think the elephant in the room is this. Why would we bother to give our lives to God? Why are we here? I think that's a very natural question, actually. Why would we bother to give our lives to God when he seems so distant a lot of the time? And when serving him seems so pointless, there seems to be so little reward. And why bother being here on a Sunday evening when there's so many better things that we could be doing tonight, and generally with our lives, than serving God? Well, for me, that's actually quite a personal question. Um, some of you may know that I'm intending in the autumn to apply uh, for training as a PCI minister. Now, when we're talking about serving God, we're, we're not saying that that means everyone becoming ministers or missionaries. There's lots of different ways to serve God. But for me, as I've kind of looked at my life, I think that would be an area I'd like to explore. But why would I commit to serving God in that very particular way? Why would I commit to serving a local church when there's so many other valuable things I could be doing with my time? Well, this question, why would we give our lives to God? That's actually also the question that people were asking in Haggai's time. Uh, if you close your Bibles, we're on page 948 in the Church Bibles, uh, so you might want to turn to that. Now, the guys in Haggai's time weren't necessarily asking this question out loud, but their actions or their lack of them, was speaking louder than their words. And as I mentioned earlier, they were back in the land of Israel, the promised land, with a specific job that they had to do, and that was to rebuild the temple, God's house. But that rebuilding project had been opposed, and so for about 20 years, the building site had been left completely derelict. The temple was just a set of foundations in Haggai's time. And so you can see from this, the people weren't really 100% committed to serving God. And in a way, you can understand that. Um, they were back in the land. But if you have a look at verse 1, you can see that they were under the rule of this guy called Darius. And he was not their king. He was the emperor of a big empire, 
uh, hundreds of miles away. Uh, and they had no word from God to them since they'd been back in the land. And so you can understand why they maybe felt a little bit distant from God, a little bit disconnected from him. Uh, you can understand uh, why they maybe felt a bit reluctant to pour their energies into serving him, given it was, it was difficult. God felt so distant, and he didn't really seem to be blessing them. So that was the elephant in the room, Haggai's people. They were God's people. They kind of knew that. But they weren't really sure they felt like it. And so they weren't really sure if they were going to commit their lives to serving God. And I think that's the other thing in the room for us. Why, when God feels so distant, and there's so little sign of God blessing us, and it's so difficult, why would we give our lives to serving Him? Well, this first chapter of Haggai is written to address that question. Um, and it's an answer that comes in three parts. Um, and firstly, we should serve God uh, because we are God's people, despite appearances. And that's the first point out here. We are God's people despite appearances. Have a look at verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Well done, Callum, for having struggled with those names. They're quite tricky, aren't they? I've just had a complete guess of what they are. But anyway. And one thing you notice about Haggai's prophecies is he often records the exact date that he delivers them. And so this one is the second year of King Darius's reign, on the sixth month, on the first day. And we're actually able to translate that into our modern calendar systems. And so this first prophecy was delivered on August 29th, 520 BC. And it's good that we know the exact date, because that was a red-letter day. That was the kind of date you circle in the calendar and you remember. Because on August the 28th, the day before this prophecy, you'd have been thinking, there's been no word from God here for 60 years. How do we know that God is still with us? People are living their whole lives without ever hearing from God. But on August the 30th, the day after this prophecy, you would know that God was still speaking to you. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And this really matters because throughout the Bible, the basic definition, the most simple definition of church is this. It's a group of people gathered around God's word. The word kind of generates a community of people. And that's basically what church is. So it's a little bit like uh, a celebrity Facebook page. Um, you know how various different people, Justin Bieber or whatever, have their Facebook pages and they kind of type up what's happening to them or they put up a picture and that kind of thing. And then their fans go on and they comment and they like and that kind of thing. Now there's lots that's not ideal about that community. There's no face-to-face -face interaction. But it is still a real community, isn't it? The person is posting up their words and people are interacting with them and listening and interacting with each other. And it's the same in the church. There's lots we can say about the church. But at the most basic level, it is a community of people who have gathered around God's word to listen to it, interact with it. And so when God's word came on that day in August, in 520 BC, God was reminding his people that he was still with them, and that they were still his people. He was still speaking. And so they should give themselves to serving him. That was why they were there. And I think it's really just the same for us. 
If we've got God's word, then we are his people, and so we should serve him. Now we might say to that, okay, that sounds great, but where's our prophet? Where's our Haggai today? It would certainly be a lot easier, wouldn't it, to serve God if we knew that he was speaking directly to us. Well, what I want to do is to see how this theme is developed uh, on through the Bible. That's always a good thing to do. So turn with me, would you, to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, you can find that on page 1201. Page 1201 and Hebrews chapter 1. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And I guess that includes Haggai in 520 BC. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Do you see the contrast there between the many times and various ways that God did speak through the prophets and the way that he now speaks through his son? There's something that's changed. And did you, but did you see the tense there, where it says he has spoken to us by his son? The writer here is saying that God has spoken, it's finished. God's revelation has come to a, a climax in Jesus. He is God's word to us. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the fulfillment of everything that Haggai and Jeremiah and Isaiah were trying to do. He does it all and more. Now sometimes I think we can be envious, can't we? I know I certainly was, of the guys in the Old Testament thinking, well, they have God speaking to them all the time. If only we have that. But I hope we can see from Haggai that in one way, these people in the Old Testament are actually very similar to us. There are often long stretches of Israel's history where they didn't have a prophet speaking to them, where they had to rely on what was written the same way we do. And so in that, we're, we're quite similar to them. But in, in another way, we're actually in a much better place than they are. We don't need to keep waiting around for new prophecies, new messages from the Lord, in the same way that people waited around in Haggai's day. Why? Well, we have Jesus, we have his son. There's something that has changed, and so we're not looking for equivalents to Haggai. And in fact, now, because we believe that the Bible is the word of Christ, every time we open up our Bibles, it's a red-letter day. It's a day that you want to circle in your calendar and remember, because God is speaking to us by his Son. We have got a prophet, like Haggai, a much better one. And that makes us God's people. As I'm speaking and we're looking at God's word together, we're the church. We're God's people here tonight. And being God's people always comes with responsibility. It's a privilege to be God's people, to hear his word. And that means we have a responsibility to listen to it, to take it to heart, and to consider how we obey God in light of it today. And so that's what we're going to do now in the rest of uh, this time as we look at this passage. Uh, we're going to read along and see what God was saying to those people back then, and what he is therefore saying to us now as his people. So the word of the Lord comes again uh, in verses 3 to 11. And in this, God firstly asks a question, and then followed by two kind of hints to help people think it through. So let's have a look at the question, first of all. I think it's quite interesting God asks us a question. He doesn't just give us the answer straight away. He wants us to kind of think. 
So let's kind of think with God. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses, while this house remains a ruin? God's inviting us to contrast the situation of his people's houses with his own house, the temple. And he's saying, is it right, when you've been sent back to the land to work on my house and build it, that your own houses are the luxury houses, the panelled houses? Uh, Haggai's talking about panelled houses here. I guess they were the -the state-of-the-art building technology in those days. They were the kind of houses to have. Um, And if we were going to update that a little bit today, but stick with the panel image, what would we go for? Or maybe something like houses with massive flat panel TV screens. My house is in ruins, but you yourselves live in houses with massive flat panel TV screens. Is that right? God is asking people. Is that right? Well, we said earlier that the temple uh, here is a prototype, a picture of the Church of Christ. Uh, let's have that diagram up if we could see. Here we go. So, we said, I said earlier when I was chatting to Richard that the temple uh, is God's dwelling place, and that finds its fulfillment uh, most of all in Jesus. But then, as we come to Jesus, we too, God's people, become a temple. So, whenever we're reading the Old Testament and seeing this idea of the temple, we should be thinking of ourselves as we're connected up to Jesus Christ. And so that means that the question um, that faces us as we read this passage as Christians is this. Is it a time for us to be prioritising ourselves, our comfort, our luxuries, while God's church is in ruins? Does that make sense? Well, before we go too much further on, we probably should stop and ask ourselves, well, is the church in ruins today? It obviously was in Haggai's day. It was just a building site. What about today? Well, I think it's clear to all of us that the church is not all that it could be. God intends for the church to be glorious, for it to be full of people, for there to be uh, thousands of people who know God fully and love him and trust him. And that's what it will be one day. And it's clearly not like that yet. It is a project that God is working on. It still needs work. And if you're in church this morning and heard some of those statistics about the church in Belfast and in Northern Ireland, I think we'll all agree it's in a pretty precarious position at the moment. There's a lot of people around, but it's declining pretty rapidly. The church is in a precarious place here today. And so here's the question for us then. Is it time for us to be serving ourselves and our comforts? Is that what we should be doing? Does that make sense? Or should we be serving the church, building the church? building God's kingdom here. Well, to help us to work out uh, the answer to that, which one are we going to choose? And it genuinely is a choice. Uh, God uh, gives us a couple of hints to guide our thinking. So here's the first hint. Let's have it up on the screen. First thing is, have a think, God says, about whether serving ourselves makes sense. Um, and this is verses 5 to 6. So have a look with me at verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. God's going here for the things that people are living for in this time. Their crops, their food, their drink, their clothes, their wages. And he says to these people, think. 
Does this make sense for you to be prioritising these things? Don't you find that they never fill you up? That you're always left wanting more? That however good the harvest is, it's never as good as you hoped? However good the wine is, it never matches your expectations? That however much money you have, you always find it slipping away? Well, in verses 9 to 11, God explains what's been going on. Have a look at verse 9 with me. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, but while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your hands. Interesting, you can see that the temple is at the heart, isn't it, of God's purposes. Verse, 10, uh, verse, verse 9, why? Because of my house. What's happened is that because the people had rejected God, uh, they hadn't built the temple as they were supposed to, and had turned instead to serving themselves, God had put the land under a curse. They could sow as much as they liked, but their harvests would never be what they wanted, because God had called for a drought. Now today, those specific curses don't apply to us. We can't kind of look and say, okay, we've got bad weather, therefore God has put us under specific curse. But, a good principle whenever you're reading the Old Testament is to remember that the story of Israel is the story of the world at large. Israel's story is a kind of a representative of the whole of humanity's story. And Genesis tells us, doesn't it, that our world is under a curse. Ever since humanity turned from loving God and having his presence among us and tried to run life ourselves, God has put a curse on our world. He said that it will produce thorns and thistles. He said that any work that we do in this world would be ultimately frustrating. It wouldn't satisfy us. Because it's not the way it's meant to be. And so our experience in this world will always be, verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. That is life in our world. That is life in a world that is under God's curse because we've rejected him. There is beauty in our world, there's much to enjoy and appreciate, but ultimately it won't satisfy us the way it's meant to, because it's under God's curse. I think we often follow a similar kind of thought pattern to the people in Haggai's time. I think we often end up trying to invest ourselves in things that are obvious and predictable that we can control in our world. Things like crops and food and drink and clothes and money. For us today, it's probably stuff like prioritising our education uh, or making sure that we have a good time all the time uh, or controlling our image so that we have lots of friends and God says to us, hang on a second, think, consider your ways. You can live for food, but if you do, you will never have enough. You can live for drink, but it will never match up to what you're looking for from it. If we live for a career, it will end up spitting us out. It will demand more from us 
then we're able to give if we want it to basically make our lives complete. If we live for good things, we'll find we're always constantly on the run for the next fix, the next thing that's going to make us happy. And we'll always be frustrated when those things go. If we live by our image and try to control that, we'll find that we won't be able to do that. That we'll do things that embarrass us and let us down. We'll find that friends fail us and we can't control things as easily as we like. If we look for much from this world, we'll be disappointed. We'll always want more. One, I used to work um, at church with, student, with a lot of students uh, in it. And uh, one of the things that we used to do uh, when we were praying for the students that we were spending time with was we often used to pray for people that God would spoil the world to them. Sounds like an odd thing to pray for someone, doesn't it? It sounds really horrible to spoil the world to somebody. Why would you do that when God's created a good world for us to enjoy? Well, he has. But if we don't see that the world is not going to satisfy us, then we'll end up pursuing it all our lives. We'll never get excited about God's purposes. We'll never want to invest in his kingdom if we think that life is all about clothes and money and success and friends. And so we used to pray for people that God would spoil the world to them. Certainly that's been my experience. Growing up, I grew up in a, in a, in a church context, uh, very much so, and uh, in a small village. And so when I went away to university, I was really keen to enjoy the world, to experience it, to get out and see what the world had to offer. And I did enjoy it. There's lots to enjoy in the world. There's lots of friends to make, there's lots of experiences to be had, and those are good things. But I did come to see over the period of about five years or so that those things were not enough. I saw friends who'd been out drinking and had a great time, who really regretted it the next day. I've seen friends who have invested loads in careers who have found themselves fired and not know why they're living in a few weeks later. I've seen that those things aren't enough for us. The world, I think, has been spoiled to me. I think that's a good prayer that we should therefore pray for ourselves. This is what God is trying to do for the people here. He's trying to say to them, listen, does serving yourself, does prioritising your own company in life really make sense? Because it's a verse 9 world. You expect it much, but see, it turned out to be little. Okay, well let's have a look now at the final hint that God gives his people as they weigh up this choice about whether they're going to commit themselves to serving him. And here it is, hint two. Think about whether serving God makes sense. So you can see in verse 7, God says again, give careful thought to your ways. He wants us to think. So let's keep thinking. Uh, if we thought about what might kind of make us invest in this world and serve ourselves, but what is it that might stop us from wanting to commit to serving God? What might hold us back from wanting to do that? Well, there's probably a clue in Haggai. These guys have been asked to build the temple. That had been amazing a few centuries ago. Filled with gold and silver, this was going to be the place of God's presence. And so you can, you can understand if these guys felt a little bit daunted by that, that they didn't feel up to that job of building this temple. Big project. So they just kept putting it off and kept working on their own houses. Surely anything they did wouldn't be worthy of God. And maybe we're a bit like that. That'd be understandable, wouldn't it? We don't feel ready to serve God. How could we? We're sinful. We're foolish. 
Best to let somebody else who looks a bit more capable get on with doing it instead. Well, let's have a look at what God says to these people in verse 8. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house, so that I may take, take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? You couldn't really accuse God here of being vague. He says to his people, right, go up into the mountains, chop down some trees, bring back the wood, and build me the house. Easy, straightforward. Um, the other day, uh, Emma was going out, and she needed me to do a few things around the house. Um, but I came home earlier than she expected, and I found she was writing out a kind of a letter for me with a list of things that I needed to do. And she does that because I'm very prone to forgetting uh, the stuff I need to do. And indeed, I did look at the letter and thought, oh yeah, okay, I've forgotten that. Um, but I was really glad that she was doing that anyway, because there was no way that I could forget what I needed to do. And it's like that with God. He's made it really easy for them. And more than that, he said that as they put their shoulders to the work, uh, he will take pleasure in this wooden house. It sounds like a log cabin, frankly, doesn't it? But God says that he will take pleasure in it. And even more than that, he says that he'll be honoured by it. He'll be glorified by this house, this log cabin that they're going to build. Well, the reason for that is we've hinted on this a little bit, and we'll see more of this next week, but the reason is that this house is central to God's purposes. It's where he's committed himself to, to working. Now let's have the, the, the next slide up here. So here's a bit of an expansion of that diagram we saw earlier, where we said the temple is God's dwelling place, um, and that is fulfilled in Jesus and in the church. But there's a kind of an either side to that that puts that in an even bigger context, which is that at creation, in the Garden of Eden, God really did dwell with his people, with humanity. God's presence was with us. Life was how it should be. And we lost that. We walked away from God. He kicked us out of the Garden. And the world lost God's presence in it. Until God came to that people and he told them to build the temple for him the first time. Well, then they lost it again at the exile. God left the temple. The people left the land. But now, back in Haggai's day, they were back in the land and being asked to build the temple again. Can you see how big a deal that was? They were being asked to prepare the way for God's presence to come back into the world in a powerful and glorious way. And that ultimately is a picture of the way Jesus came. Jesus did come back to the temple. He came as a man, but he came as God to the temple. And then the church, and then on to the new creation. That is where God will one day fully and finally dwell with us, and every tear will be wiped away. God will dwell with his people. And so when these people are being asked to build this little wooden log cabin, they're being asked to do something that God has committed to bless and to use to bless the whole world. That little house was at the heart of God's purposes. And so it really mattered. We'll see more about that next week. But I hope we're seeing the contrast here between serving ourselves and serving God. If we serve ourselves, we get less than we bargained for. You looked for much, and we got little. But with serving God, we do a little bit, chop down a few trees, build a little wooden house, and God says, I will be honoured. I will be pleased. We get more than we bargained for when we serve God.
I think sometimes we make serving God more complicated than it needs to be. We sort of say, oh, I can never be like that. I can never do those kind of things that he can do or she can do. I've not got the abilities to serve God. But it's not rocket science, is it? It's about putting God and what he wants first. It's about looking in the Bible and saying, your will be done, and then trying to do it in our lives. It's about loving God and loving our neighbour. It's about trying to share Jesus with those around us and love our brothers and sisters in the church. I have to say that from the people I know here around Kirkpatrick, often the people who feel in themselves least capable, who feel like they could never be used by God, who I actually look at and think, you are being powerfully used by God. God is the kind of God who uses our very feeble efforts and says that he will take pleasure in them and be honoured by them. Isn't it exciting to think that as we seek to share Christ with people around us, as we love our brothers and sisters, as we build the church, God will be honoured. And that we're doing something that is at the heart of his purposes for our world. Often, I think we're ambitious uh, for ourselves, frankly. Uh, we're happy to just keep God ticking along, but we'll invest all our energies in being ambitious for us. We go to church, but we're basically interested in furthering our purposes. I think we should reverse that totally. I think we should be ambitious for God's work in the world. We should be ambitious for pleasing him and his glory. And we can trust that as we do that, God will look after us, that he'll keep us going. Jesus uh, said to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And all these things, he was talking about food and clothing and all the things we need, all these things will be added to Seek first God's kingdom. Well, we've been considering uh, whether serving God makes sense. And what we see is that serving ourselves really doesn't make sense. If we live for our own comfort, our own pleasure, in this world, we'll find we get less than we bargained for. But if we live for God, if we seek first his kingdom, we'll find that he is honoured and glorified in us and through us. We'll be at the heart of his purposes for our world. Well, in these final verses, we read that the people in Haggai's day, verses 12 to 15, uh, responded to all this. Uh, it says that they came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. They decided to give themselves to God, and they put serving him first, above serving themselves. There's no cliffhanger uh, in this passage. But there is a cliffhanger at the end of this sermon. The question for us is, will we? Will we seek to put God first and serve him and build his church? Well, shall we pray? Our Father God, we thank you for the encouragement this evening, that you are glorified and honoured and take pleasure in our, our labours for you. And Lord, we know that we're sinful, we know that there's much that we can't do, but thank you, Father, that you do choose to use us. Father, as we consider um, day by day whether it's worth putting you first, we pray that we'd be remembering always that this world will give back less than we expect from it, but that you will, you will always give us more than we expect. 
And we pray that uh, as we do this series in, in Haggai, we pray that you give us greater clarity in what it means to serve you today. And we pray that you give us great encouragement uh, to be building your kingdom uh, as you work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.